Hey, so I imagine you're listening to this podcast because you're an artist yourself and you want some insider tips, insights, and general advice from artists you respect. One aspect of the business we sometimes discuss on Best Advice is rollout strategies. When you're dropping new music, you want to give it the best chance of getting heard. It's all about reaching the right listeners at the right time. That's why our team at Spotify for Artists built Marquee. Marquee is a marketing tool for turning listeners into bigger fans of your new music. With Marquee, you can send full screen recommendations of your latest album, EP, or single to the right fans as soon as they open the app. Listeners who see your Marquee are twice as likely to save your tracks, making it a better way to develop your audience than trying to drive streams from social media. To find out more, go to artists.spotify.com slash marquee. Two quick things before we get started today. First, if you have emailed me your running story, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I haven't responded yet, but I will respond to them shortly. And secondly, I got sick this week and I am still recovering. My voice is not 100%. I've tried lozenges, tea. Anyways, sorry. Bear with me. Amy Downs was born in Louisiana in 1967. I was never very good at school, and I would describe myself as having barely graduated high school, and I flunked out of college. Frankly, I just really um, did not apply myself. Amy says that growing up in the South, she felt like there were really only three options open for women. She could go to school, get married, or go into the military. And when the school thing didn't work out for me, and I didn't really want to go in the military. I've got to figure this out quick. Amy's sister suggested a fresh start. So Amy moved to Oklahoma City, where her sister lived. Amy got a job as a teller at Allegiance Credit Union. Her sister set her up on a blind date. And so, you know, whatever, you're just like, okay, I'm going to get married because that's what you're supposed to do, right? In Oklahoma City, Amy fell into a predictable pattern. She'd go to work, come home, she'd eat, turn on the TV. Meanwhile, her marriage was off to a rocky start. And Amy found comfort in food. You know, I gained 100 pounds very quickly. Like in about a year, I gained 100 pounds. And so I was too embarrassed to go back home. And this was before we had cell phone, email, and all that. So her relationships with friends and family deteriorated. Because it was embarrassing. I didn't want to see them. Amy felt stuck, not proud of where she was in life, but also complacent. Sure, things weren't ideal. She wished she'd finished school. She wished she had better control of her weight. But she wasn't really taking steps to change them. The bright spot in her life was her work. It was there at Allegiance Credit Union that Amy found her community. Her coworkers were her closest friends, her social group. And she felt like she was excelling at work. She didn't have a college degree, but over the seven years that she worked at the credit union, she'd earned a few promotions. She worked her way up to the credit card department. I remember walking into the office and passing one of the homeless guys that would come in all the time and get a free cup of coffee. And um, I said hi to him and went on up into the building, talked to a lot of my friends. In fact, I was chatting with my friends so much, I remember thinking, okay, almost an hour has gone by and I haven't done any work. (laughs) So I remember, you know, getting to my desk and thinking, okay, I really need to get to work here. Her office then was in the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City. It was a beautiful spring morning that day. Uh, Redbuds were in bloom. It was just beautiful. I actually sat on the third floor 
and not very far from the front glass windows of the building. The front of the building was a grid of glass, like a massive old TV screen in a concrete frame, nine stories tall. And I was sitting at my desk and one of my coworkers came and sat down beside me. Her name was Robin. She was seven months pregnant. And I turned to ask Robin what she needed. And I remember when I turned to say, hey, Robin, what do you need? I don't even know if those words came out or not because that's when it happened. Everybody and everything around her was gone. I'm Rachel Swaby, and this is Human Race. On each episode of Human Race, we tell stories about runners and the world of running. This week, Amy Downs and an event that cracks a life in half. A promise in a horrific situation, and what happened after? Who was the person that came out of the rubble? That same morning, just below the windows by Amy's desk, a small moving van, a rented 20-foot rider truck driven by Timothy McVeigh, pulled up to the front of the building. The truck was packed with agricultural fertilizer, diesel fuel, and other chemicals. McVeigh lit two fuses and then took off in a getaway vehicle. At 9.02 a.m., Amy's coworker Robin sat down at Amy's desk. Amy turned to her. And for me, I, it, everything instantly went black, and I felt and heard just this tremendous roaring in my head. It was so loud, and I could hear all these people screaming, and this woman screaming right in my ear, help me, Jesus, and then me realizing that was my voice. Like, I didn't even recognize the sound of my own voice. And I was falling. I felt like I was falling, and... I remember just hearing what it sounded like, a, you know, like gunshots going off or fireworks, just loud explosions one after another. And, and then everything got quiet and the screaming stopped and everything was really quiet. And it was really hot and dark. And I remember there was just a really horrible smell and I couldn't feel my own body. It was hard to explain, but it was almost like I was having an out-of-body experience of some sort. Amy spent 45 minutes in total confusion. And it was so much so, the kind of where am I thing, that I actually thought, did I die? Am I dead? Amy had plummeted from her third floor office to the ground floor. Her body was full of glass shards, but she couldn't feel them. She was upside down, her leg pinned in place by building materials that had fallen on her. And then she was completely covered in rubble. Amy wasn't dead. She was buried alive. She screamed to try to get someone, anyone's attention. Then she heard a voice from somewhere above her. I hear you, child. How old are you? Amy replied that she was 28. The rescuers were looking for kids near what used to be a daycare center on the second floor. They couldn't see Amy, so they asked her to keep talking. If they were going to find her, they needed to follow the sound of her voice. 
I could hear them moving the rubble around and everything, and they uncovered my right hand. And um, I'm thinking they're going to grab my hand, one, two, three, pull me out. And, of course, it didn't work that way. I was stuck. And then I hear another man's voice, and this man is yelling, there's another bomb, there's another bomb, everybody let's get out. Now, now, there's another bomb, and I can't go anywhere. So um, I just begin telling them my name over and over again, tell my family I love them. I'm scared, you know, and I just was prepared that that was it. This was it. Amy prayed, pleaded, and bargained. She wasn't ready to die because when she thought about her life up until this point, all she saw was regret. It was very clear to me, you know, exactly where I had gone wrong, you know, in a lot of areas, um, from spiritually to physically to, um, you know, my friends, my family, relationships, everything. So Amy made a deal with God. If she made it out, she'd change everything. She'd make spiritual changes, she'd go back to school, reconnect with friends, family, she'd lose the weight. She wouldn't take her life for granted. She vowed to transform it completely. And then all of a sudden, the words to a song that we used to sing a long time ago in in church when I was growing up, all of a sudden it popped into my head out of the blue. And I actually started singing. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. When I started singing, I felt so much peace, and I knew I was going to be okay. And I knew. I didn't know they were going to come back and find me. I really thought I was going to die, but I was at peace, and it was okay. The rescuers returned 45 minutes after fleeing. There was no second bomb. It was a false alarm. But Amy was still in grave danger. Even if they couldn't clear the rubble around her, her right leg was pinned. The area was extremely unstable, so they kept having to talk about whether they should amputate my leg to get me out. And every time I would ask the fireman, you know, hey, are you guys going to be able to get me out? He would always answer, we're going to do our best. And that bothered me. Six and a half hours after the bombing occurred, Amy emerged from the rubble. She still had both legs. And I took my first breath of fresh air, and I remember I was looking up at the sky I just, I promised God I would never live my life the same. That promise resulted in some extraordinarily unlikely life changes. Amy's story beyond the bomb, that's after the break. Amy is 50 now, and when she thinks about her life so far, it splits into two clear sections. Before the bombing and after the bombing. When she was forced to examine her first 28 years, the prevailing emotion was regret. She didn't ever want to feel regret like that again. So she intended to keep that promise to God. But it's not like she could simply flip a switch inside herself. First, she had to come to terms with the world in which she now existed. 168 people were murdered. 18 of her 33 co-workers died. Amy lost her best friend. She lost her boss. The pregnant woman who stopped by her desk to chat right before the bomb went off. She was killed too. A parade of people she cared about. Instantly gone. The grief was unbelievable. Amy was the third last survivor to be freed from the worst homegrown terrorist attack in United States history the Oklahoma City bombing of 1995. 
The attack was carried out by Timothy McVeigh, an ex-Army soldier and anti-government militia supporter. Oklahoma Highway Patrol arrested him just 90 minutes after the bombing. He was in custody hours before Amy was finally freed. Meanwhile, Amy had glass from the building embedded all over her body. She was so sore that she couldn't even sit up to look at her legs. She knew that her leg had a cut from being crushed beneath the building, but she hadn't seen it. The next morning, um, I did an interview with Katie Couric on TV, on live TV, and she asked me the extent of my injuries. And I remember, you know, saying, I'm so lucky I just have a little cut, you know. And then right after that, they took me to Whirlpool Therapy, where they began unwrapping all the bandages off of me. And that was the first time I looked at my leg and realized I had a large gaping hole in my leg. (laughs) It wasn't a little cut. She can look back with humor now. But Amy says the first three years after the bombing, they were a total blur. She can remember just bullet points. Physical therapy helped her walk again. She was back at work almost immediately, making phone calls from the hospital and then working from a computer brought to her home. Even for something like gardening, which she loved, she really had to force herself to do it. But she didn't forget about the promise she made while she was trapped. Amy began making changes in her life as they were manageable. She made some spiritual changes immediately. And then she went back to school. She got her bachelor's degree and then her master's. Years went by, and Amy began making more and more changes, doing what she could to be the best version of herself. Her weight was on the list, but at around 350 pounds, the task seemed just overwhelming. When you're facing 200 pounds to lose, it's a lot different than facing 20. It it seems insurmountable. I mean, it just seems like it's something you can't do. But in 2008, she was beginning to have some physical problems, and she was having trouble keeping up with her son. You know, and if I can figure out how to do some of these other things in my life, there's no reason I can't tackle this. And maybe I need to go at this from a different um, a different angle. You know, if I'm going to, you know, try to count calories or join Weight Watchers or whatever, and whatever my method is, and I keep failing at that same method, it's not the method, but maybe I need to try something different for me. So I started researching weight loss surgery. And I had a lot of mixed emotions about that because I felt like, well, if I did that, that really means I'm a failure because I'm not doing it the, quote, right way or, you know, whatever. But um, my boss and, and my mentor, she said something to me one day that really stuck out. And she said, when you have a habit, a destructive habit in your life that is preventing you from living life, you do whatever it takes to get free. You know, if you were an alcoholic, you would go to rehab. If you were a drug addict, you would, you know, whatever that is for you, free yourself. Amy got a gastric sleeve surgery. Surgery made her stomach smaller, which would limit overeating in any one meal. Amy's doctor warned that her surgery was only good for about 75 pounds. The rest she'd have to lose on her own. And sure enough, one year later, she hit her weight loss plateau. I'd never been around anything athletic in my entire life. Like, I was the person that didn't get picked for the team, and people argued over which team had to pick me, you know, in in middle school. Nevertheless, Amy joined a gym, and her sister invited her on a bike ride. And I had so much fun. I loved it. And I remember telling her we did this little um, 10-mile, you know, this uh, T-shirt ride, right? And um, I remember telling her, I said, okay, this is really fun, and I'll do this. But I'm not wearing all that weird stuff like you guys wear. Famous last words. Oh, my gosh, my closet is nothing but, 
you know, athletic wear now. Padded shorts. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. One year later, Amy rode her bike across the state of Oklahoma, a five-day journey. And funny things happen when you start to realize the potential of your body. When you see your strength emerge through training and practice, you start to wonder, what else is my body capable of? Because I'm a survivor of the bombing, we pass out medals at the finish line of the Oklahoma City Memorial Run to Remember, which is the marathon that honors the 168 people that were killed. So I was at the finish line and thinking, oh my gosh, if they can do this, I can do this. Amy decided to sign up to run the half marathon the next year. So um, I told everybody I was going to run in honor of my friends that were killed the next year. I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to run in honor of them. And then I showed up to the first run. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, what have I done? I literally could run for like 10 seconds. And I would have to walk for two minutes to recover. I mean, it was it was horrible. And I'm thinking, I can't believe I opened my big mouth and told everybody this because there's no way I can do this, you know. But Amy kept working at it. And those 10-second stretches turned into 30-second stretches and minutes of running at a time. By March 2011, she met her weight goal. Thanks to her surgery, her biking, running, and going to the gym, Amy had lost 200 pounds. She weighed 155, down from over 350 just years before. One month later, she completed her first half marathon, the Memorial Half Marathon, with a handful of coworkers she roped into running with her. In fact, um, in fact, that picture right over there is a picture of me and my coworkers that I talked into it. And um, we all ran it together, and, and um, it was such a neat experience. She points to this picture on her desk at work. It's a line of smiling faces. It's Amy's first big running accomplishment, but it would by no means be her last. But as Amy worked to fulfill that promise she made to God to become the best version of herself, it also meant confronting the trauma of the bombing. And this trauma emerged in some totally unexpected places. That's after the break. When Amy first started getting into running, she signed up for a 5K. Like my very first run ever. I was up at the very front of the start. It was a little local 5K, so it wasn't very many people. So I'm up at the very front, right? And um, the gun goes off. Mm. And I scream and hit the ground. Mm. And everybody else starts. And then I start laughing immediately because I know what's happened because loud noises scare me like that. The effects from the bombing are still in her body. And through the years, she's had to deal with them reappearing at unexpected times. Here's another example. In 2012, a friend convinced Amy to do a sprint triathlon. But I didn't know how to swim. and Like didn't know how to swim at all or like, just didn't know the strokes? No, did not know how to swim at all. Like I knew how to dog paddle. So I took swim lessons, which I'll never forget because I hired a um, coach to do it. And I had on a swim dress, like, with a cute little skirt and everything. <laughs> and he walked up to me and, like, looked me up and down and went, what is this? And I was like, it's my swimsuit, you know? I mean, I was so embarrassed. And he just looked at me with such disgust, and I thought, oh, gosh. And I remember I went home and cried after that swim lesson because – he, he was not a nice person. And so he just really made me feel like he, I was wasting his time. 
And at the pool, I saw all these young people in their Speedos. And, you know, I've lost 200 pounds, so I have a lot of excess skin. I don't look athletic. And so I really felt humiliated. On top of that, when I went to put my head in the water, I was totally unprepared that this would actually be a, a PTSD trigger for me. And putting my head in the water and not being able to breathe brought back memories of being trapped. And I would have never, like, I would have never realized that. So that little 30-minute lesson, like, I got in my car and I literally just bawled the whole way home. I mean, I just cried and cried. And I thought, I can't do this. But remarkably, even after the terrible physical response and the awful teacher, Amy got back in the pool. So I um, practiced and I went back for my next lesson and he, I could tell he was visibly surprised. Amy mastered the pool and in 2014 she decided to try open water swimming. And it was very windy in Oklahoma that day. In fact, we had tornadoes that evening um, of the swim. And so I went to get in the water, and you can't see. Like, you can't see at all. Like, your hand in front of you or anything. And then the waves were really high. So I had a complete anxiety attack on the open water swim and couldn't put my face in the water and actually dog paddled that as well. So how did you get over the feeling that you were freaked out? Like, how did you get over, like, how did you go back in the water the next day when it, like, so viscerally affected you? Um, I... I just figured that if I did it enough, you know, it's like, it's like anything. When we step outside our comfort zone, it's uncomfortable. But at some point, you do it enough, then that's now inside your comfort zone. Amy lives by this approach that if something frightens her, if she's flooded with adrenaline and she starts to panic, she'll do that thing again and again until her body gets used to it. And it's not like she's desensitizing herself to roller coasters or a fear of heights. Every time Amy stands at the starting line and listens to the gun go off or puts her face in the water where it's dark and where she can't see anything, she's staring directly at her trauma. That is real bravery. Today, Amy still gets creeped out by the thought of snakes and turtles that might be lurking in her local lake. So I imagine like zombies, dead bodies, all kinds of weird things under there. But it doesn't stop her from swimming. She even enjoys it. There was something important that happened right after the bombing. Something that has helped inform her approach to her life after. There was a nurse in the emergency room that told me to talk about it as much as I could talk about it. And my sister is a psychologist and she told me the same thing. And so I did. I talked about it a whole lot. And I really think that has helped me a lot to be able to process it is just to deal with it and talk about it. She gives interviews. In fact, she even walked with me through the bombing site, which is now the Oklahoma City Memorial and Museum. Amy showed me the old footprint of the building. The building's gone now. In its place are rows of chairs. The third row of chairs is the third floor, and that's where I worked. So all these chairs that you see, the third chair back across, those are all like the people I worked with. I asked Amy if it was hard to be there. Uh, it feels uncomfortable to be here sometimes. Like, uh, I'll feel, you know, adrenaline pumping. And then this big old wall, my name's on here. It's like, yeah. it's like, where's Waldo? Yeah, you gotta show me your name. Amy pointed out her name on the wall of survivors. Right. Do they all? 
there. And then we walked up to this massive American elm tree with a wide canopy of green leaves presiding over a circular courtyard. When Amy gets up there, she looks more relaxed. The tree was badly damaged in the bombing, but it survived. And today, it thrives. It's just really cool. And I mean, to think this tree was just an ugly tree and now it's beautiful. And they have, it's not surprising got, uh, Amy looks more at home here. But even when she's not at the site of the bombing, she says that the bombing stays with her. I describe it sometimes as it's kind of like an app that's always open in the background. You know, it's just there. Um, the, the only time that, um, I want to say it's a problem, which is not really a problem, but the, the, the time where it's uh, maybe a little more of a struggle is always spring. Um, it's so weird how a change of seasons can bring back stuff. And I've heard this from other people that have gone through traumatic events. Um, during spring, it can become really difficult. I don't know. It's not like I'm sitting around thinking about the bombing. It, I just will become on edge or anxious or depressed, and I don't know why. And then it dawns on me, oh, it's March. It's, you know, it, it's, it's right. Yeah, that, and, and it always lifts. After the anniversary, it always lifts. Every time. Thank you. Mark Bravo! <laughs> I'm Mark Bravo. We're at OK Runner OKC in downtown Oklahoma City. And uh, I'm uh, simply a running coach, um, kind of a part of the running community. The store is just a few blocks away from the memorial. In 2012, after running the half marathon at the memorial race, Amy decided she wanted to run the full marathon. But to do it, she needed someone's help. So Amy hired Mark to train her. Mark was encouraging, and Amy was determined. Yeah. My only concern was she pushes herself so much because she wanted it to be faster than yesterday, than two days ago. And as you know, um, I'm a big believer. Progress isn't predictable or linear, and uh, uh, she bought in. Not right away. <laughs> They're easy and jokey around each other. It's clear they share a warm history. You can tell she's an athlete if you never saw her. She is a world-class sweater. She, she is big time. Amy's but, goal was to run the Memorial Marathon in five hours, and Mark was going to get her there. Amy got faster, stronger. She started to run further. Mark encouraged Amy and applauded her progress. And even saying this now... It feels like a little thing, like, of course, a coach would be encouraging. But in Amy's life at that moment in 2012, that regular positive voice felt nourishing in an unexpected way. Almost like she didn't know how desperately she needed water until she was finally given a glass. And through working with Mark on her running, she realized it was essential to her future happiness to only surround herself with people who built her up. Which meant she had to make some pretty hard decisions in her personal life. Amy trained hard for the marathon, and seriously. She was right on track to achieve her five-hour time goal, 
When two weeks before the race, Amy got into a bike accident. Had a concussion, took the brunt of my knees. I mean, it was pretty bad. But I still was able to run, so I was going to run the marathon. But halfway through the marathon, I started having trouble with my knees. I started having to walk, and everything fell apart. It wasn't at all what I planned. And I remember crying, bawling my eyes out, um, thinking, you know, none of it worked out. And I was going through the divorce at the time. And I'm thinking, this is just like my life. Nothing is, I planned it perfectly. I trained. I'm supposed to be a five-hour marathon. Okay, I planned my life perfectly. It was supposed to go a certain way, and none of it's turning out at all. I remember I wanted to quit. And... A cyclist friend of mine appears out of nowhere in blue jeans on a bicycle. She had just had a baby. She had just, I didn't even know she was still riding. I hadn't seen her in a while. And she's like, Amy, what do you need? And I'm like, I need Advil. And so suddenly this random guy is standing on the street and he's like, opens his hand up with red pills. I have Advil. And I'm thinking, I hope that's Advil, but okay. And so she had gone on her bike to get me water, came back with water. I take the Advil. I'm crying. She just rides along beside me in silence while I'm walking and crying. And then I remember some a song by Rascal Flatts called Stand comes on, you know. Wipe your hair, shake it off, then you stand. I'm trying to get motivated. I'm, you know, crying. And I start running a little bit. Because I know my whole big five-hour finish is blown, you know. But I look down, and I'm running a 12-minute mile all of a sudden. And I'm at, like, mile, I think it was mile maybe 17, 18. And I start running again. And I think, you know what, that's okay. I'm going to finish. It's maybe not how I planned it, but I'm going to finish. And so as I get to the end, and I'm almost to the finish line. My coach, Mark Bravo, who's normally on TV um, doing the commentary for the race, okay, I'm so late now that he's off TV. He's standing there. They're tearing down the finish line. There's a guy on the ladder starting to take down stuff, and the big finish line is in front of me. He's running me through, and he says, athlete, look at the time. And I look at the digital time as I run under the, the deal, and it says six hours and 30 minutes. Is the exact amount of time I was buried alive. The finish was emotional for Amy, and of course, a proud moment for Mark. And it was also a pretty powerful indicator of just how far Amy had come. For another person, this might have been the ultimate conclusion of her promise to God, seen as a promise fulfilled. But remarkably, not for Amy. Amy continued to push forward. Let's start with work. Amy began working at Allegiance Credit Union in her early 20s. And as you remember, she started as a teller after dropping out of college. In January, she'll become the company's CEO. And in relationships, Amy is a newlywed. She met her husband five years ago on a bike ride to celebrate her 45th birthday. Um, we rode the same pace, which was bizarre because, like, okay, we're actually riding the same pace. Well, technically, I was riding a little faster and he was slowing down, I think is what happened. <laughs> and then um, the, the following week was the anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. And that's always a tough day for me, the anniversary. And I thought, you know, I'd like to get away and ride someplace like where that birthday ride was. It was beautiful. And so I asked him, I was like, hey, are you buying chance off work? Do you want to? you know, ride with me out there. Um, and he was like, sure. So we went and rode and spent the whole day riding. And one year later, they were married. 
And I feel I should mention this just because it's so stinking cute. But they made everyone who came to their wedding ride bikes there. The church was near the Oklahoma City bombing memorial, and they made sure to include it on the ride. I, like, I liked going around it because, to me, it was kind of a, um, you know, a celebration. Um, this is my second chance at life. I mean, yes, what happened at the memorial, what it represents, you know, there, there's a lot of sadness that went on, but there's also, um, you know, I, I got a new beginning. Amy and her husband, they cycle and run together. And when Amy goes out to swim in the lake, he follows her in his kayak. He takes notes on her form. He helps her strategize for a more economical technique. If you were in our household, you would think I was some kind of pro, you know, because we take it that seriously in our household, you know. And their activities have ramped up a bit lately. This year I turned 50, and so I decided um, I needed to do it big. So, full Iron Man. So, yeah, it made sense. That's a 2.5-mile swim, a 112-mile bike ride, and a 26.2-mile run. And what is crazy is that she decided to do a full Ironman after she did a half Ironman and hated it. Um, I said, actually, on video uh, live that I will never do anything like this again because it was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my whole life. Totally. You know, pick something that you did not like that right. was super hard and right. then just go for that. Uh, yeah. I said I'd never do a half again, so I'm doing a full. And Iron Man is some true athletic badassery. Something less than 0.01 of the world population has done this. And this from a woman who had no exposure to anything athletic for most of her life, who nearly had her leg amputated, and who lost 200 pounds... Not to mention who bravely faced the memories of a horrific event, even through her training to move past it. What is remarkable about Amy is that she will face the tragedy. But what she refuses to face ever again is regret. I think that has fueled the rest of my life to, to not want to ever face that regret again. Amy's an upbeat person. She says that even in tragedy, it's important to ask yourself. What can you take that's positive out of it? You can't control what's happened to you in life. You can only control how you choose to respond to it. So how are you going to respond to it? Yeah, what happened was not fair. Yes, it sucks. But what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What can you do? This episode was produced by me, Rachel Swaby, with editing help from Christine Fennessy and Brian Dalek. Our theme music is by Danny Koch. Human Race is a proud part of Panoply. You can find pictures of Amy running on our site at runnersworld.com slash audio. Go check them out, and we'll be back in two weeks. <laughs>